Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. When they had arrived, they gathered the church together 
they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. Thank you, church. You can be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us musically and in the reading of God's word. Appreciate all of you guys. I don't know how much your life and your habits changed this past year when the pandemic hit. Uh, One of the changes that took place uh, for myself, I uh, prior to um, the pandemic had been a member of a a local gym, like a lot of people, gone to the gym a few times a week and kind of did my own thing, exercises, which was fine, but you know, eventually it gets repetitive and I get bored and so I'm probably slacking off a little bit, whatever. So when the pandemic closed gyms, like Amy and I realized we needed um, two things. We needed a plan for, for working out and we needed a place to do it. And at the moment, we kind of didn't have either. And so since then, we've gradually laid out a home gym. That's been one of our projects this pandemic season, right? We pulled one of the cars out of the garage and cleared stuff out and laid like rubber floor tiles down and got some equipment. And we've got this area where you can actually exercise now out there. Um, and then the other thing is, I'm like, man, I got to have a plan. Now, in the day and age we live in, you know, there's a million pre-made workout programs out there. You do realize you can live your entire life on YouTube, right? I mean, you can do anything you want. So there's like a million pre-made workouts. And so we kind of looked around at some different ones and settled on one um, that I'm following. And I'll tell you, there's definitely a difference between following somebody else's plan and what they think my body should be doing versus what I think my body should be doing when I'm off on my own, you know? And the reason I know there's a difference is because of how painful it is. So I've been, I've been at this thing for like two weeks now. You guys notice the difference? <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be funny. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, actually, I noticed the difference. Uh, the first probably eight or nine days, uh, there was a different part of my body that was constantly stiff and sore. I think I was incredibly sore somewhere in my body for like nine days in a row. <laughs> Standing here preaching last Sunday, I'm like, ooh, don't move in certain ways, you know, because there's just muscles that hurt that I'm not using enough. Um, I'm actually happy because two weeks into it, I'm less sore. So maybe that's progress. I don't know. But I've got a plan. Um, I got a plan. And a place and a plan is really important if you want to get anywhere and accomplish anything. Um, this, is, this is a time period when people are like rethinking huge areas of their lives. Have, have you noticed that? We're rethinking, somebody's rethinking <clears throat> almost everything. I mean, from like vacation plans to um, life goals. People are rethinking friendships. People are rethinking marriages. People are rethinking their address, their workplace, even their churches. Like everything is on the table for people these days. We're making changes to our houses and our spouses. We're making changes to our peers and to our careers. This is a time when a lot of people are rethinking a lot of stuff, some of which is really, really good, right? Some of that's really good. Something like the pandemic comes along and just kind of shuts down or at least scales way back life as we know it, the stuff that we normally invest time in, we either can't do anymore or or it's really, really different or it's really, really difficult and everything, the whole kind of apple cart of our weekly schedule gets upset. And one of the good parts of reflecting on that is it forces a lot of people to step back and go, you know, is my life really about the things that I think it should be about? Those are the kind of questions we asked 
before the pandemic, but you know, it's, it's hard to really stop and focus on that when life is going a million miles an hour and you just got the next set of things on every day's agenda. Well, suddenly when the agendas all change, sometimes it creates the space to step back and really think, am I doing what I should be doing? Am I investing myself in things that really matter? And that's a great question to ask. So some of this reflecting and rethinking is really healthy and really helpful. Of course, not all of it is healthy and helpful. Uh, some of it is, is bad. Maybe, maybe discontent that we've been feeling in any one of those areas, you know, with a job or in a relationship or in a given neighborhood or whatever, that normally we just kind of push it down and move on because life is so busy. Well, all of a sudden the pandemic comes, everything changes, and then those, those discontents rise to the surface and they get magnified in our minds. They get sometimes incredibly irritating. You know, and eventually that, that can go on. Those things can get so accentuated that grass's greener syndrome kicks in, right? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, we all know that the grass really isn't greener, but I tell you what, sometimes I'm not so sure, right? When this grass is getting really brown and really dry, that grass over there may not be perfect, but it looks a lot better than this grass that I've been living with for a long long time. If nothing else, even if I know it's not perfect over there, whatever over there means, whatever I'm rethinking in my life, even if I know it's not perfect, at least it's different, you know? It's different. And this is a point, this thing has gone on so long, and with the weather changing and some of the restrictions starting to loosen, man, this, this is a time period when a lot of people are saying, right now, different looks better, just because it's different. And so I just want to jump over here because it's different. And there's so much in my life I can't control, but at least I can control this. I can make this change and so I'll do it because I feel like I'm doing something. The problem, of course, with that is that we can invest a lot in changes that don't actually help us get to where we want to go. And sometimes in the long term, those are detrimental. You ever made a decision that later you regretted? And you look back and you're like, what was I thinking? <laughs> We've all done it, right? We've all done it. I remember talking to a friend several years ago, and she and her husband were trying to get out of a lot of debt and trying to organize their financial world. And, and one of the things she's like, oh, this big problem is we got this like vacation timeshare thing we bought into. Now, that's not always a bad idea. That's a great deal for some people, I'm sure. But for this couple, they were like, that was a bad idea. <laughs> but we got, we got caught up in the sales pitch and we got all um, infatuated with the vision for how much joy this thing could bring us. And now we are a few years later and it's just a burden, Right? It's just a burden, but we can't even get out from under it without it costing us even more, so we feel stuck, and oh, the regret of dealing with this. It's like, I don't know what we were thinking back then. We've all been there, right? We've all been there. As a church right now, we want to think ourselves, and we want to help you think through this process well. Now, poorly, but well. Both as individuals and for us collectively as a church family. We're seeking to lead our whole church to the good kind of reflection during this season. Asking ourselves why we do what we do as individuals and why we do what we do as a church and whether or not all of that lines up with who we really believe God has called us to be and who that we want to be. So that leads us to our study in the book of Acts this morning. Because Acts is a book in the New Testament that clearly fleshes out God's mission for his church, which is, as we've seen multiple times, it's to make disciples by spreading the gospel in the power of the Spirit through local churches. That's what God is up to. 
This entire book of Acts shows how that gets fleshed out in real life, but it always comes back to the central thing. God is seeking to make disciples by spreading the gospel in the power of his Holy Spirit through local churches. And what we're going to see this morning as we turn to Acts chapter 14, which you just heard read for you by several people, is we're going to see this morning that if we want to achieve God's goal of being mature disciples, we've got to follow God's training program. Now, admittedly, that's, that's language I'm kind of putting on top of Scripture, but I think when we get there, we're going to see that that's not really forcing anything on Scripture. God actually lays out how this disciple-making process is supposed to work. He gives us the tools and the resources to get there, and then he says, get after it. This chapter is going to show us those tools and resources. In fact, Acts chapters 13 and 14, we saw 13 last week, we're looking at 14 today, uh, they are together. They detail what Bible scholars refer to as Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, so much of the rest of the book of Acts is going to unfold along the lines of the Apostle Paul heading off to places to preach the gospel. And as we saw last week, he grabs uh, another guy named Barnabas. They traveled down to the island of Cyprus and then up north to a town in Antioch. We saw all that last week. And today, in chapter 14, we pick that up, that narrative. So let me pray for us as we dive in. Father God, as we open your word, we pray that you would illuminate as we need it. Where there is um, fuzz for people, Father, I pray that you bring focus. Where there is discouragement this morning, God, I pray that you would bring hope. Where there is aimlessness that we're struggling with, would you bring us clarity of vision and purpose? Where there is weakness in us, would you bring your strength? And where there is a coldness of heart, would you bring us a passion for your glory? God, this we ask for our transformation, for our good and for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. So, the whole thing starts, again, kind of mid-journey here. I, I put a map up last week. You hear all these place names in the New Testament, and they're all ancient cities that all have different names now, and some of them aren't even there, so where are they going? I find maps helpful. Last week, they were down there on the island, and then they went up north to Antioch, which is where it starts. This week, they head from the town of Antioch at the top there to Iconium, and that's where we saw this first encounter where... Like in the town of Antioch last Sunday, the gospel is preached, people become Christians, and at the same time, opposition arises, except this time it intensifies. Uh, this time it intensifies. There is a plot to stone them, Paul and Barnabas, that they, uh, fortunately, it's uncovered, it's communicated to them, and they get out of town and they escape before it happens. Now, the, the, the Bible narrates that just like assuming that we know what stoning means. Stoning back then was a form of capital punishment. It was a way to execute a religious criminal. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was a method of execution in which the executioners threw heavy rocks at the convicted person until they're killed. Not a very pleasant way to go. It's a very, very painful way to go. It was reserved for those who commit really obvious, heinous crimes against God, those who denied God or those who just sort of overtly disregarded some of the key provisions in God's law. And that's what they wanted to do to Paul and Barnabas. And they, they didn't just want to, like they were actually planning to do it. They're telling these guys, by preaching the gospel, you are defaming the name of God such that we need to kill you according to God's law. 
this is intense. Life and limb are now being threatened. Fortunately, uh, they hear of the plot and they're able to escape. The escape drives them down to this next town called Lystra, which is uh, straight down there on the map. And they hang out there for a little while. Now, at this point, the story takes a little bit of an interesting detour because we get this whole long story about that, how they got mistaken for Zeus and Hermes, which is kind of funny, and then it's kind of not, right? Um, there's a miracle that uh, Paul and Barnabas work in, in healing a man, and, and that leads to the crowds venerating them as the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. By the way, it's interesting that if you recall from last Sunday, when they were in a town called Paphos down on the island of Cyprus, they first did a miracle that resulted in the conversion of the Roman governor of the island. So God does a miracle and it leads to somebody finding life in Christ. It leads to a conversion. Here they do a miracle and it leads to confusion. Which is interesting, right? God doesn't always do the same thing in the same way. God's moving doesn't always receive the same response from different people and in different places. Here a miracle leads to total confusion. And these people rush at Paul and Barnabas. They try to venerate them as gods. And they're like, wait a minute, we're not gods. We're just people representing the real God. That's who you need to hear about. You see, it's very easy to see Jesus through the lens of our worldview, isn't it? Through the lens of our worldview, the lens of our assumptions about God. Uh, for years, I had blue blocker sunglasses that I would wear when I drove, and they were, you know, yellow tinted. And so I'd put those things on, and, um, you know, you put them on, you look up at the sky, and it's all green, right? It looks like moss or something up there. It's all green for like a minute or two. And eventually I'm driving around town and I don't even notice it anymore. And you know, you glasses wearers or people are used to sunglasses. If you get a well-fitting, comfortable pair of glasses, like you eventually go about your day, you forget they're even on your face, right? You forget you're actually seeing the world through this tint. Somebody looks up at the sky and says, what color is it? You're like, it's blue. And then you take off your glasses and you're like, oh my goodness, it's really blue. I guess it was kind of greenish, you know, but I got used to it. That's what's going on here. These people had glasses on and they didn't understand them, so they heard the gospel and they were filtering it through their tent. Happens all the time. If we come to Jesus expecting a moral philosopher, someone who teaches you how to have a happy and fulfilling life, then that's what we often see in Jesus. You know, isn't he the guy that said, Love your enemies? Sounds like a good thing to do. Um, turn the other cheek. Boy, if we could get kindergartners in the playground to do this, like we would change the world, right? These are just good moral rules. Uh, the golden rule, you know, doing others as you have them doing to you. Didn't all that stuff come from Jesus? He's a great moral teacher. You know, sort of like Gandhi or Confucius or anybody else. If, on the other hand, you expect a spiritual guide who will lead you to discover inner peace or sort of a cosmic life coach who will help you make the best choices to achieve the best life you can possibly have, then that's often what you see when you come to Jesus. If we expect, on the other hand, a religious rule giver who sketches out all the boxes that you need to check in order to get good with God, then that's often what you see when you come to Jesus. Or if you expect the divine judge who's here to nail us every time we do the wrong thing and make sure that we're straightening up and flying right, then we tend to see one in Jesus and we want nothing to do often with God and religion because we think it's a bunch of condemnation and rules. But you see, if we listen to him describe who he is on his own terms, if we take off our glasses, which is possible, it's hard work, but that's actually possible, then we get a very, very different picture of him. We end up seeing a God who loves the world and gave his only son in sacrifice so that anyone who, who banks on him and, and, and trusts him will not die but receive eternal life. 
You see how different that is from the spirit guide who helps you find fulfillment? This is the God who comes in love and sacrifice. If we listen to him describe himself in his own terms, we see a God in flesh who didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world from the divine judgment that our sin rightly earns us. You see how different that is than the divine judge and the condemner? We see a merciful Savior. And if we listen to Jesus describe himself, we see the answer to all of God's promises. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said in Mark 1.15. So different from the moral life lessons. This is the one who comes to lead us home. Jesus is God in human flesh. Come to live for us the life we should have lived, but don't. And then come to die the death we rightly should die, but no longer have to and to then rise from the dead to the new and eternal life that we long for, can't attain on our own, but now can have and share in Christ's as he offers it to us as a gift. This is the gospel. This is the good news these guys were preaching. How do you see Jesus? If you've never seen or responded to Jesus this way, I invite you to repent, to find life in Christ right now. If you'd love to know what that means, I encourage you to talk to a Christian that you know or come talk to me, one of our elders. We would love to help you learn how to begin a relationship with Jesus that will only change your life, it'll change your eternity. Well, they seek to set the people straight. We're not Zeus, we're not Hermes, we're trying to point you to the real God, and they preach the gospel. But the story takes a sudden, sharp turn at that point. Despite all that's happened so far in verse 19, if you're in Acts chapter 14, despite all that's happened so far, the Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium, those two places they had already been. They fled those towns to get away from these guys, but these guys chased them, having pursued, uh, persuaded the crowds, sorry. They stir up the crowds and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When you look back, you realize throughout this whole journey, the opposition has been building. Uh, When they started down there on the island, it was like God showed up and did a miracle and it shut down the opposition. You remember that? That Jewish false prophet we talked about last week? And God like temporarily strikes him blind and he shuts up and then everybody becomes a Christian. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people, right? And it looks like smooth sailing. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He shows up, he shuts down the opposition and he makes life grand. That was the first town. The next town they go to, this place called Antioch, they preach the gospel, people become Christians, but then there's no miracle, and they get run out of town. They get run out of town. So they go to the next town, and they preach the gospel, and many people become Christians, more opposition arises, and they get threatened with their lives, and they barely escape with their lives, and now they come to the last town, and they don't escape. Paul is actually stoned. These people hammer him repeatedly with heavy rocks and think he's dead. He probably got hit in the head with a rock and knocked unconscious, and he was so beaten and bruised and broken, they dragged him out and left him for dead. It's a miracle that he didn't die as friends go out around him and help him up. And then they go back into the city. Now, these next four verses, 20 to 23, is where I really want to land because these four verses kind of tie this whole thing together. What are we supposed to take away from these two chapters? What do we make of all this? This is is the money water. This is where all of the application and the relevance to us comes in. Verses 20 to 23, let me read them again. But 
When the disciples gathered around Paul, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, the final town they went to on this journey. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They backtracked to every town that they had visited in order to reconnect with the new Christians that they had helped make, in order to prepare those Christians to walk the long journey of following Jesus. And in the process, they demonstrate three key elements of what it means to follow Christ. These are instructive for all of us at all times who are followers of Jesus. Three key elements. First is the lesson that following Jesus is costly but worth it. Following Jesus is costly but worth it. (laughs) When he said there at the end of Verse 22, um, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The fact that Paul was so battered, beaten, bruised, and contused when he was saying that probably added to the force and the weight of the statement, right? (laughs) They're like, Paul, you're the guy who's like working miracles. How could God let this happen to you? Paul's like, this is how it works, guys. They're like, what? What's he saying? It costs to follow Jesus. You got to understand that. That's why he's telling them that. This is not abnormal, The costs won't always look the same for every follower of Jesus. Uh, Certainly most of us won't get hit in the head with a heavy rock because we're Christians, I hope. (laughs) But there will be costs. There always are costs. You know, Olympic athletes who want to win the gold medal go into that pursuit knowing that it's going to cost them a significant portion of their lives. You don't just, you know eat potato chips and drink soda pop and show up on race day and win a gold medal. That is not how it works. You have to sacrifice, and they make that sacrifice willingly, believing that it's worth it for a shot at the gold medal. Following Jesus entails growing and changing. Those are processes that are always uncomfortable, always somewhat bitter, always painful, and always challenging. At best, they're uncomfortable, and at worst, they're downright painful. And nobody signs up for pain, let's face it. Nobody's like, yeah, I want to go be miserable today. I can't wait to get out of bed. It's just not who we are. But as we'll see in a moment, following Jesus also entails investing in other followers of Jesus, giving up portions of our lives, giving up our time, giving up our energy, giving up our... Uh, emotional uh, bandwidth, even sometimes giving up money, giving those things away to people to advance their pursuit of Christ. Those are sacrifices that are often never fully repaid in this life. Following Jesus has a lot of pain and sacrifice. The only way we willingly embrace pain is if we believe it's worth it. That's how God wired us as people. We will willingly embrace pain if we believe that it's worth it, that it's going somewhere that will make it worth it in the end. The slogan, no pain, no gain, has kept so many people pushing through sweat and burn at the gym, right? Nobody goes in for pain, but if I have to do pain to get where I want to be physically, maybe that's worth it to me, you see. 
Um, I w- climbed Mount Lassen with my father when I was um, a young boy. I was actually in junior high. Um, the hike was a long one. It was arduous, uh, Mount Lassen, Northern California. Um, we got up there. I was so tired. I remember being exhausted. Um, but I also, to this day, remember the view. I remember the view. It was amazing. There was mostly clouds covering the central floor, the valley, um, central valley floor. So it's like we were, and we were up above them, so it was bright and sunny and blue sky where we were. And you could just look out over this ocean of clouds, and north of us there was Mount Shasta, just bursting up out of the clouds like an island in the middle of the ocean. And then there was a part you could look down south where the clouds had kind of burned off, and you could just see for miles. It was amazing. This is 35 plus years ago, and I still vividly remember that feeling of saying, wow, I could just about drop. It was all snow up there, um, even though it was summertime. And I'm like, I could just drop and lay here on the snow. I'm so tired, but wow, this was worth it. You don't get that view unless you do the hike. Following Jesus demands sacrifice, but, but it's entering the kingdom of God. <laughs> The Apostle Paul told them, yeah, there's many tribulations, but that's how we enter the kingdom of God. It's worth it, guys. It's worth it. You will regret no pain, no cost, no price you've paid now to further your discipleship later. So that leaves us with a a question. What would it cost you right now to take a step of growth in your relationship with Jesus? Maybe... It would take laying down control of your life and pride to become a disciple of Jesus in the first place. Is it is a desire to hold on to that control keeping you from finding eternal life in Christ? Letting that go can be painful in the short run, but it leads to life. Maybe for others of us, it, it means confronting a source of discontent in my life rather than demanding that others adjust to you. I'm not happy with this circumstance, so I'm going to change the circumstance to tell other people to change rather than facing what's going on in me. What sins are driving my attitude that need to be confessed and repented of? That's more painful, but that's what leads to greater growth and depth of intimacy with Jesus. Maybe it means taking the risk of being vulnerable with another Christian so that they can help you grow rather than keeping the, no, I'm fine, I'm good, mask up all the time. Being honest and letting somebody in entails risk. It's a vulnerable position. There's a cost. But when brothers and sisters in Christ walk with one another, we reach new heights in our relationship with God. Or lastly, maybe it means making the time and energy for someone to do that for you. Another Christian wants to drop the guard and be real. And we're like, I'd just rather go hang out and have fun. This is costly to walk with somebody else. Yes, it is. But God called us to make disciples together. It's worth it. What would it cost for you to take a step of growth toward Christ right now? And by the way, let me say, if you have no idea how to even begin to answer that question, that's a great prayer. It's a great prayer. Whether you've followed Jesus for 40 years or you're just learning about God for the very first time this morning, you can pray and say, God, help me see what I need to do, what I need to go through to get closer to you. Help me believe it's worth it. Help me do it. The first lesson is that following Jesus is costly but worth it, but there's more here. The next lesson is that we need to prepare for the long goal of following Christ. Uh, We need to prepare. You need to prepare well ahead of time if you want to embark on a major undertaking. You've got to get ready for it. 
Um, I think for my dad and I, we climbed a few mountains when I was a kid, and so we kind of got it in our blood, and we thought, hey, this is really cool. Let's go climb some bigger mountains. Here's the problem. I grew up in a really urban family, okay? (laughs) My parents were not like campers, hikers, backpackers, outdoorsy people. We grew up in a big city, and so, but my dad kind of got this great idea that, hey, we did Mount Lassen. Let's do Mount Whitney, Biggest mountain in California, okay, down Southern California. Now, here's the thing. It's probably still true, but, but back then, um, the thing to do at Mount Whitney is it was a two-day hike, right? So you climb up to what's called the base camp, and there was this area below the summit, and people would, like, camp there overnight, and then they would get up the next morning and finish the hike up at the top and then hike all the way back down on day two. We don't backpack. We don't have tents. We don't have gear. We don't know anything about that stuff, okay? So... Our plan was, let's just leave early and do it all in one day. (laughs) I was like in junior high, so I should really say this was dad's plan and just blame him. But anyway, that's what we did. We drove down there. We parked at the trailhead at like, I don't know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. We slept in the car for like four hours, and we got up at some ridiculous, I don't even remember, two or three o'clock in the morning, and we hit the trail in the pitch black with our flashlights. And we're like, we're going to do this, you know? And um, to our credit... We made it to the base camp where everybody camps overnight by, I don't know, it was like 12 or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And there's like tents pitched for like normal people who are doing this the right way, like they're going to finish it, you know, tomorrow. And by then, we were completely gassed. First of all, um, it's high up there. I forget, Mount Whitney's like, I don't know, 12, 14,000 feet, something like that. I mean, it's huge. And so we were way up there. And my dad started suffering altitude sickness, you know, where you get a little nauseous and woozy because you just hadn't adjusted to the altitude yet. And we were just tired. And we're looking up. You can see the summit from there, but we're like, it's going to be another couple of three hours if we were at peak energy to get up there. There's just, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way we're going to make it. And so, and we got to go, we turn around and we went all the way back down. Oh, I know. Thank you. It really helps heal some brokenness in my childhood. No, I'm <laughs> totally kidding. We had, it's crazy, it's a fun memory, and someday maybe I'll actually go back there and get to the top. But anyway, <laughs> the point is, like, we failed because we didn't prepare, right? We're like, we can just do this. Well, no, you can't just do it. Now, we could have done it, actually. It's not like only serious mountain climbers can do this. People can do that hike. You just have to do it right. You have to have the right gear. You have to know what you're doing. And we didn't prepare. That's why we failed. Had we prepared, we could have done it. But we didn't prepare, and we failed. It's remarkable that, to me that, that, that Paul and Barnabas deliberately retrace their steps. This map kind of shows the whole backwards journey, starting from Derby. They then go back to, and you notice in the Bible, he specifically lists every single town by name. He wants us to trace out the map in our heads. It's easier for me to do that up on the screen. When they had preached the gospel in Derby and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. He wants us to see that they're retracing their steps and going back to all those towns that they'd gotten run out of previously, including one where they almost got killed. Why are they doing that why are they doing that he tells us why they're doing it strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith you see paul and barnabas understood something they understood that the job wasn't finished when people embraced jesus as savior and lord for the first time that's not an end that people reach that's a new beginning that people reach That's just the beginning of a lifelong journey that you have to train for and you have to prepare for. They need to be trained. They need to grow. Scripture describes this process when it uses the language of maturity to describe the Christian life in so many different places. The move from immaturity to maturity. The Bible 
often even uses human development as a, a, a word picture for spiritual development. We move from spiritual infancy into spiritual maturity. Like a baby grows into an adolescent, grows into an adult, eventually grows into a parent who reproduces new babies and helps them grow and repeat the same process. The life of following Jesus is a huge lifelong goal from immaturity to maturity that can be depicted in four stages. Now, some of these words are mine, but I've stolen them all from other people. This is a very common way to look at the Bible and try to break down what does it mean in just big picture terms to grow, to become a Christian and grow as a Christian. And while these are not rigid categories, people are messy, there is some key stages in spiritual development, just like there are key stages in human development. You can trace it out this way. Uh, first, it starts with being, I'm an, I'm an unbeliever, somebody who does not believe in Jesus, somebody who's not a follower of Christ. And that's like being unborn. That's like a baby who's not been born yet, not been conceived yet or not been born yet. Jesus said in John chapter 3, to become a Christian is to be born again. You were born physically, you then need to be born spiritually. So there's a whole lot of people that have been born physically, but the Bible says they have not yet been born spiritually. And, and the call of Christ on that person's life is come, come and see Come and see God. Come and see Jesus. Come and see the beauty of a God who would so love the world that he would give his only son. Of a son who would love the world enough that he doesn't come to condemn us but to save us and to lay down his life. This is where Jesus invites people to come to understand the gospel, to recognize who they are and who he is and to repent and give their lives to Christ. And when a person does that, they move over into this next stage which is sort of like a, a young or, or immature believer. Immature is really the right word. It has a negative connotation I'm kind of trying to avoid, but just a, a, a brand new, like a baby, just somebody who's not yet mature. And the call, that's, that's like an infant, right? And, and the call there from Jesus is, is follow me. Follow me. Once you've seen who I am, there's the call to follow me. The first time I do that, I become a Christian. But then I go through this period of life where I'm learning what it means to follow Jesus. I'm becoming established in the fundamentals of the faith. I'm learning how to read my Bible for myself. I'm learning more and more about God and who he is and what he says. I'm learning how to pray. I'm learning how to share my faith. I'm learning what it means to be part of a church family. I get baptized. I join my local church. This is all stuff that happens in these early stages as I figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I'm learning what it means to follow me. And then God's desire, though, is that we grow beyond that into a maturing or growing believer, a growing follower of Jesus. This is Loosely analogous, if we want to push this analogy to adolescence, you know. I move into my teen years, maybe even my young adult years. I'm no longer as um, helpless and, and, and dependent on people around me. I'm growing, I'm becoming stronger. And the call of Jesus here could be characterized as come and die. Come and die. That sounds painful. Sometimes it is, <laughs> but it's worth it. It's worth it. Anyone who would come after me, Jesus says, must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. The Apostle Paul described it when he, this way when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. This old me is progressively dying as I die to my old self, and I embrace more and more a new self who lives for Jesus, not for me. That is painful. As sin comes up and we have to face it, wince at it, call it what it is, confess it, and experience the pleasure, the, 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 cha the transformation of God, which brings the deepest pleasure in the long run that we can possibly experience. 
We learn not only to do the basics of the faith, but how to really live for God, not self. But you know what? Our journey isn't over at that point. The final stage in this journey is to become what you could call a reproducing believer. You could say this is roughly analogous to being a parent. And while not every person physically and biologically becomes a parent, every Christian is called to spiritually reproduce, or in the words of our Lord, go and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. This is the call of Jesus to multiply. Now that you're learning what it means to follow me, you go teach other people what it means to follow me. Walk with them in that journey. Preach the truths of the gospel and the Bible to them and walk with them as they grow from infancy through adolescence and into maturity. General terms. This is, a, this is a good, pretty basic standard way to think about the Christian life. And this is important. This is kind of language we're starting to use a little bit more um, in our leadership meetings here at Harvest. We want to kind of put it out here too and start to encourage us as a congregation to engage with this stuff. What does it mean to become a follower of Jesus? Come and see. Follow me. Come and die. Then multiply. If I'm doing that, I'm doing what Christ called me to do. That's mature discipleship. That's who we are meant to be. Of course, the danger at each stage, again, these aren't just rigid stages. There's some flex and some organic growth, but but there are defined developmental processes. And the danger at each stage is stalling out. Always, always, every time, that's the danger. Stalling out. Why? Because we get comfortable where we're at, and everybody likes comfort, and nobody likes discomfort, right? But moving on to the next stage is always uncomfortable. We could say that moving to the right is actually moving uphill. (laughs) It hurts. There's a cost involved. We've already seen that. So it's always easier to settle for our current level of relationship with Christ rather than pressing on to follow God's call in my life. (laughs) One of our members made this comment after last Sunday's congregational meeting. I so appreciated it for its honesty. They said, you know, coming out of this pandemic for me is challenging because I've become a bit too comfortable in my aloneness. It's like, wow, thank you for speaking for so many of us. Especially if you're a little bit more introverted and you're more comfortable with just a few people around you. Maybe you have the few people around you and then who? we're happy, we're comfortable. Where's the motivation to reach and stretch and open myself up to other people? It's costly. I feel that. A lot of times I don't feel like I want to do it. But you see, the danger is that we always just stay where we are. So speaking of that, where are you? Where are you? As you, as you look at a, a simple grid like this, where would you say you're at with relationship to Jesus? And wherever you are, are you stuck there? Are you stalled out? What would God have you do right now to take a step further uphill, to take a step to the right. It's a good prayer. Thankfully, you're not alone. You're not alone. That leads us to the third and final point. First of all, we've seen that following Jesus is costly but worth it. Secondly, we need a plan. We need to prepare. We need to train. And God has showed us what the process looks like, how we need his word and his spirit and his people in order to go through this process of growth. But there's one more thing. Just like my working out, we also need a place. We need a place to grow. We need churches in order to prepare people for the journey of discipleship. Look at verse 23. 
when they had appointed elders for them in every church, then with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And only then did they move on. Here's what's interesting to me about this. We're getting the highlights as we read these two chapters. There was a lot more going on that didn't make it into the narrative text. Clearly, one of the things that's happened is that in every city they were in, they talked about Jesus, people became followers of Christ, they went from unbeliever to new believer, and then they organized those people into defined churches. And then on their way back, they made sure that every church was established and they appointed elders or leaders. Why? Why were they doing that? Well, we've already seen why. The previous verse, they were strengthening the soul of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. And apparently, in order for that to happen, they thought, you guys need churches and you need elders <laughs> to continue to stay at this journey that is hard but worth it. You need churches and you need elders. In the 1970s, here in the U.S., a control of amateur athletics was... Um, a nightmare. It was the prize and a power struggle between three different organizations, and it wasn't clear who was in charge. The first organization was the U.S. Olympic Committee, the second organization was the NCAA, and the third organization was the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union. The confusion led to inconsistency in training um, programs and um, preparation of athletes. All of this sort of culminated in the 1976 Summer Games in Montreal, where some logistical deficiencies meant that several U.S. track and field athletes didn't even get to the stadium on time for their events, and they were disqualified because they didn't show up on time. It's a colossal embarrassment for U.S. amateur athletics. And so in 1978, the Congress stepped in and settled the debate. They passed a law that defined the U.S. Olympic Committee as the official overseers of amateur athletics for uh, Olympics, and they also mandated the creation of a dedicated center to train Olympic athletes. They said, if we're going to do this right, we've got to know who's in charge, and we've got to, so we have a plan, and then we've got to have a place for these athletes to go and get maximally prepared. And that set off the process of building the U.S. Training, Olympic Training Center, which is in Colorado Springs to this day. You see, they realized that succeeding at the long-term task of having athletes ready to go and optimally prepared to compete, they needed a clear leadership and they needed a place for developing those athletes. That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas are doing here in Acts 14. That's why they retraced their steps, because following Jesus is costly and Christians need to be prepared and developed. So to do that, we need clear leaders and we need a place to train believers for this task. Those leaders are called elders, and the places are local churches. Do we see how central what we are doing right now is to the plan of God? Elders or pastors, those words are used interchangeably in the Bible, it means the same thing, are needed, needed to be appointed in every local church in order to teach God's word. Because that's how we change, right? We've seen that. How does God make disciples? Through the proclamation of his word in the power of his Holy Spirit through local churches. So those elders are there to make sure that local churches are teaching the word of God accurately so that the spirit can use it to transform people. They're there to teach God's word and to oversee the life of the church to make sure that it is doing the disciple-making work that God intends it to do. Notice that job description. It is not the job of a pastor, whether paid or an unpaid elder, to be um, a modern-day priest 
We don't carry the weight of all of God's stuff for you. You don't come to a church in order to be ministered to and and a few people are just taking care of the masses. That's not God's model. He wants every Christian to grow into disciple-making maturity. The task of those elders is to equip you for that job. How do you grow into maturity so that you can make more disciples? You can do that. That's what God designed you for. That's what he's called you to. But you need a plan. You need a place. The plan and the place are in Scripture. It's with his leaders and his church. And the churches themselves. What is a church? Why is a church so essential? Friends, a church is nothing more than a group of Christians who covenant together to say, we're going to do this disciple-making thing together as a group. And there's other churches around, and we love them, and we're in fellowship with them, but we're an us, and we're going to pursue this disciple-making mission together here at Harvest Community Church in our case. The covenant, see, this, this idea of covenant commitment means that, that churches are, are not really just places that we go to or attend. And I think this is something that we as Americans, evangelical Christians, could probably stand to think a little bit more about in general. Many of us understand this, but as, as a general rule, we could stand to think about that because we speak of, of churches we go to, you know. I attend Calvary Chapel. I go to Harvest. Uh, I go to Sunrise. I attend over at, at 26 West. You see, churches to us are places we go and attend because we've been taught to think that way by a consumeristic culture. But the Bible describes churches more as, as, as groups that we belong to. Groups that we've covenanted together to say, yes, we're on mission together. We're going to contribute to and and oversee and encourage one another's growth in Jesus. You help me, I help you. That's what we're doing. We're in us and we're on this Jesus mission together. The covenant that we make is our membership process. See, it's just when a group of people say, yes, I'm in. I'm one of us. I'm in. I'm here. And it's always a joy and a delight to see Christians come to faith in Christ, get baptized, and then say, I'm going to commit to be part of this body. Friends, if you are a Christian and this is your home church, whether you have brand new to Harvest or whether you've been here for years, we would love to see you take that covenant step of membership to say, I want to go on record to say, I'm part of us to pursue this mission together. Because we need churches. We need a plan and we need a place if we're going to prepare for this mission of following Jesus, which is costly but worth it. You see how much is going on in this first missionary journey? Let me land this plane on these two chapters with two thoughts. We'll close with this. First, what do we do with all of this? I don't know what God may lead you to do. Let me suggest a couple of things. First of all, if you're eager to be part of our disciple-making mission here at Harvest, which is what we want to come out of the pandemic focused on even more so than we were beforehand, it's not a new mission for us, but we want to re-clarify and sharpen up not only our focus, but our activities around that. If you want to be a part of that, and we're inviting you, please come be a part of that. Here's, here's two things you can do right now. Uh, the first is to pursue our membership process, which I just mentioned. We've got a number of people in the process right now we're eager to introduce to you soon, and we're looking to schedule another membership class soon. That's where the process starts. You just come learn about what is membership, you ask questions, and you gather together. If you're interested in that at all, we would love to schedule one in the early summer. Um, let us know. Fill out one of those connection cards, either a digital one or a live one. Just 
put your contact info and write membership on it, throw it in that box, or send in the web form. We will get in touch with you. We will get that scheduled soon. Second, here's something all of us can do, whether we're members or not currently. We've got a great little book called Discipling, a little blue book, looks just like this. And we're, we've got these out at our Harvest book table uh, in the atrium. If you're watching online, you can just run out on the internet, wherever you buy books, and you can find this. Discipling, uh, the author's name is Mark Dever. This is a great little book to read through to get ideas on how to make disciples. It's a super practical book. It's like, what is discipling? We talk about making disciples. What does it even mean? What does that look like? What am I supposed to do? Is there like a curriculum I have to teach through? I'm not a teacher, so is that just not for me? No, no, no. It dispels many misconceptions we have about how to walk with each other. It helps us figure out, what if I tried to reach out to somebody and they kind of rebuffed me and now I'm just discouraged? What do I do? It just helps us think through at a very practical level what this discipling process looks like. Grab yourself a copy of this. Read through it. Read through it with a couple of friends and say like, hey, what do you think we can take away from this? It'll be a great Kickstarter just to get us thinking about as the church kind of starts to make plans and heading toward the fall, how can I participate right now as a part of this church and connecting with other people? I encourage you to pick that up. Because in the end, if we want to reach God's goal of being mature disciples, we've got to follow God's training program. And his training program is his local church and maturing into discipleship. It's a costly journey. Oh, but friends, it's worth it. That's worth rethinking your life over. Worship team's going to come back up. Would you pray with me? God, as your church, we come to you asking that you would make of each one of us a more um, deeply committed, fully devoted follower of Christ that you would train our hearts to see your beauty even more, that you would move in us to love you with greater passion, that we would see some of the things that it costs us to follow you and be willing to pay those costs because we believe deep down inside you're worth it. And God, when we struggle and when we're discouraged, which is going to happen to every one of us, God, may we be the kind of church where there are lots of brothers and sisters around us saying, you can do it. Keep going. We're all in this hike together and the view is glorious. Let's go together. God, may this be a church where people continue to find life emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and freedom from sin in Christ and as members of your family. God, we ask that you would receive our worship now as a grateful people, even as we offer ourselves to you and pray for your best in us, for our good and your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand?